Good morning. The meeting will come to order. Welcome to the February 21st, 2024 meeting of the Budget and Finance Committee. I'm Supervisor Connie Chan, Chair of the Committee, and I'm joined by Vice Chair Raphael Mendelman and Supervisor Malgar. Our clerk is Brent Halipa. I'd like to thank Kalina Mendoza uh, for, from SFGovTV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder to those in attendance, so please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices so as to not to interrupt our proceedings. Uh, should you have any documents to be included as part of the file that should be submitted to myself, the clerk, uh, public comment will be taken on the hearing on this agenda. When public comment is called, please line up to speak on the west side of the chamber to your right, my left, along those curtains. While not necessary to provide public comment, we do invite you to fill out a comment card and leave them on the tray by the television to your left by the doors. Uh, if you wish to be accurately recorded for the minutes, alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's one, Dr. Carlton, be good at the place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And that concludes my announcements, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And just wanted to welcome Supervisor Hillary Ronan and Supervisor Catherine Stephanie joining us today at the Budget and Finance Committee. Um, and I think we're ready to call the sole item on today's agenda. So, Mr. Clerk, please go ahead. Item number one is a hearing on the status of the city's residential treatment bed expansion plan for people suffering from mental health and substance use disorders, additional needs for treatment beds, particularly for higher acuity levels of care, uh, barriers and solutions to achieving the city's goals of expanding treatment beds across its behavioral health system. Madam Chair. Thank you, and this is the, uh, this, the sponsor of this hearing is by Supervisor uh, Rafael Mendelman, our vice chair, and so I'm going to hand it to him f um, to to um, chair and to uh, hold the rest of the hearing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you for making time for us to um, have this conversation here at um, this committee this morning. Um, uh, it's a little bit of a reunion for uh, Supervisor Ronan and I, who I feel like have been having this hearing uh, intermittently for um, many, many years. Um, I want to thank uh, Supervisor Ronan for her co-sponsorship. I also want to thank uh, Supervisor Stephanie um, for her leadership on behavioral health issues generally and for her co-sponsorship. Um, and then I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Hillary Cunnins and Tanya Mara from the Department of Public Health uh, and Jail Health Services and Kelly Dearman um, from the Department of Disability and Aging Services who are gonna be presenting today. They and their teams um, do amazing work every day, uh, work incredibly hard. Um, I think there is a tendency in the public and, um, and in, uh, among elected officials uh, to see the clear evidence of the ways in which government is not working. Um, and to not see the people who are trying really, really hard to make government work. And so even though it's my job and our job to highlight failure sometimes or to point out the ways in which we are missing the mark, I do um, want to, again, thank the people who uh, know way more than me and are trying really, really hard every day. So um, now. <laughs> um, 
it is the impacts of of uh, San Francisco and California's mental health and addiction crises are painfully clear uh, to all of us, and we know there is a connection between the lack of appropriate placements for people with severe mental illness uh, and the crisis we see on our streets. The California statewide study of people experiencing homelessness conducted by UCSF last, last year estimated the prevalence of mental illness among the unhoused to be as high as 80 percent. Um, and we are also, I think, familiar with the uh, sad and story, sorry history of the state's retreat over the last half century from its historic role as primary mental health provider for indigent Californians with severe mental illness. As the state pulled back, the burdens on local government uh, have grown, um, especially in the state's major metropolitan centers and very much especially here in San Francisco. Um, and at some level, I think most of us understand that many of the people who might have once experienced care in state mental hospitals are today cycling among San Francisco's emergency rooms, our acute psych services um, in lots of hospitals, our jails, uh, and, and our sidewalks. Now, I said this conversation had been going on for quite a long time. I think it was happening before Supervisor Ronan joined the board seven years ago. Um, it was well underway when I joined the board five, five and a half years ago. In 2020, uh, the mayor's uh, director of mental health reform, uh, the mental health czar, uh, Dr. Anton Nagusa Bland, prepared a rough point in time flow analysis to estimate the number of additional placements that would be required at various levels of acuity to allow consistent patient flow in our behavioral health system and to eliminate wait times. At that time, Dr. Nagusa Bland identified the lack of locked subacute beds as the most acute need uh, with an average wait time of two months for placement. He proposed that the city should consider acquisition of its own beds to ensure availability and cost savings by relieving the bottleneck occurring in high cost care settings. Following Dr. Nagusa Bland's report, the mayor and Department of Public Health announced their behavioral health residential treatment expansion plan in 2021. That was a plan to add 400 new treatment beds to the 2,200 beds that were then in place. And the good news, I think it's good news, um, is that uh, DPH is nearing that 400 bed total. Today, we're going to hear um, about the work they've done and where they are. Um, I have some concerns about how we're counting um, and uh, have a basic concern about whether other factors that have come into play in the intervening time leave us ahead of where we were five years ago, behind, or running in place. Um, and I think that's an, actually an open question. Um, we're also going to hear today uh, about an updated flow analysis uh, that DPH has undertaken that indicates that despite the addition of beds over the last several years, significant need remains. And in fact, DPH has identified a gap of between 55 and 95 locked subacute treatment beds. I am glad for that estimate. I would point out that when Dr. Nagusa Bland did his analysis five years ago, he identified a need for about 50 more 
locked, subacute, or skilled nursing beds. So that goes to the question of, are we making progress, are we falling behind, or are we running in place? The other thing we're going to hear about and that I want to delve into, and the reason I have also asked the Department of Aging and Adult Services to present, is that this updated analysis, unlike the 2020 analysis, does not directly address the need for residential care facilities, residential care facilities for the elderly, adult residential facilities, all of this more commonly known, I think, is board and cares. Um, but we know that that need is acute and growing, and we know that someone in city government, whether DPH or DOS or some combination of the two, are going to need to be making, I think, plans to address that need, or all this work that we do on the, more, on the higher acuity beds is going to run into a crunch as we try to move people um, into uh, less acute settings, but still settings where they are getting significant support. Um, some of us on this board have been paying attention to this issue for a while. Um, I know that Supervisor Ronan in particular has done some work on board and cares in her district. She and I have worked together on some of, on some of those. We've worked on legislation to prevent the loss of board and care beds. I don't think that legislation has been all that successful, honestly, on the land use side. Um, Emission Local reported that San Francisco had lost 118 beds from July 2021 to March 2022, um, and we knew it when they did that story that we'd lost many of hundred, many hundreds of board and care beds in the prior decade. Today, we're going to hear a little bit more about updated uh, um, numbers on the loss. The city has had a long-term care coordinating council assisted living work group for again the entire time that we have been on the board of supervisors. I do not believe that if, you, if we look at um, any measure of progress on this problem <laughs> that we would say that we, have, that we are where we would want to be um, or that uh, the efforts of that body have been successful. And maybe I'm missing something, but it's, um, it's concerning. Um, so uh, we're going to hear about DPH's work on the 2020 analysis and the 2021 plan. We're going to hear about their updated optimization study. I think we're going to have, I know I have questions about how many of the beds are real and what it means to be added. Um, uh, and I think the third thing I'm imagining that we'll touch on, at least in part, is the changes in law and the new opportunities that are coming. So over the last year, and you know, some real mental health champions in Sacramento have tried to create more legal tools to, um, to allow us to care for people who may not know that they need care. Care courts is one effort in that regard. Some estimates say there's 1,000 to 2,000 people in San Francisco who could benefit from care court. We can accept that analysis, we can, we can reject it, but we know there's a lot of people out there who need help. There's also SB 43, which seems to be a rather significant expansion in, in conservatorship authority brings uh, substance use disorder within, um, within the criteria for conservatorship, allows inability to care for one's own medical needs to be part of the criteria in establishing the basis for conservatorship. So we have more tools to conserve people. We have care court, but we have that basic problem that we've had for a long, long time of not having the right places for the people we would want to get care to. And I think... Um, you know, the, the work that has been done highlights that need. And, and now we also have this potentially significant opportunity in the form of Proposition 1, 
which is both going to create a huge source of funds for capital investment and also hold counties accountable to spending a, a set percentage of our Mental Health Services Act funding on um, long-term long care for people who need longer-term placements. So curious to hear how DPH and DOS are thinking about that. Um, I think that is much of what I wanted to say. Um, I think there's continues to be real work to do. I want to thank Supervisor Ronan uh, and the department for the work on Mental Health SF, which I think has gotten us into a better place to understand the data, to, under to see the system as a whole, but I think Supervisor Ronan would probably agree that we're not where she hoped we would be, we're not where I hoped we would be when we started these jobs so, so long ago. So um, with that, I think I will go to presentations unless colleagues have comments they would like to share. I do want to thank Zara Haji in my office for um, all of the wrangling, for passing on my um, idiosyncratic, bizarre questions to DPH for their willingness to engage with my office in preparation for this for this hearing if anyone has anything they want to say they put themselves on the queue or uh, we will go to Dr. Hillary Cunnins uh, and I think possibly Tanya Mera the director of uh, jail behavior health and reentry services may be coming later or you can stay seated unless okay hello <laughs> hello Dr. Cunnins uh, good morning uh, good morning supervisors Chair Chen, Vice Chair Mandelman, uh, Supervisors Melgar, thank you, Supervisor Ronan and Stephanie for joining as well. I know this issue is extremely important uh, to all of us. I also just at the top before I know we will get into many uh, complex questions, really appreciate Supervisor Mandelman, your thanks. Um, I am very lucky to be at DPH and with a team who really, whose work this represents, um, who are committed, hardworking, want to make things better, uh, working their hearts out, uh, including to be responsive to your collective concerns and questions. This is, these are thorny and important issues that we all care deeply about, and the solution, the problems are the result, as you point out, from decades of disinvestment and uh, inadequate policy, uh, policy choices at levels of government uh, at the federal and state level that result in a significant number of challenges at the municipal level, which I happily dig into, but it is uh, vexing at times. I want to share with you, um, as you describe our behavioral health residential bed types and current inventory estimates of our growth losses and staffing capacity, estimation of needs, and try to lay out both challenges and strategies. I hope to answer the question about why we uh, both believe we are, in fact, making progress uh, and not falling behind or running in place but also highlight where more work is, is very much needed. Um, so a lot of these slides are very detailed. Uh, I know you have them in front of you. 
I will try to both highlight the details as well as the larger points that I think they are trying to carry. As of this fiscal year, SFDPH has an estimated 2,551 residential beds. This total is an estimate because it includes a kind of bed that we're going to term, that I'm going to term in this hearing, as needed. As needed beds are not contracted at fixed numbers and change based on needs and availability. A lot of these are out-of-county beds at the highest level of intensity of care, and I'll come back to that. The mental health, and then we further divide our residential care programs into two types, mental health and substance use. This is in part an artifact of funding and licensing streams and represent uh, sectors where people who might enter a mental health residential program have a primary or predominant mental health diagnosis and vice versa for a substance use residential. Our expectation and the state's expectation is that programs have capacity to also treat the other problem even if that is not their primary sort of orientation. So in the mental health residential programs, we have approximately 1,861 beds. Again, these include both as-needed services and services with fixed bed counts. They include in and out-of-county beds. Most services are in-county. They offer a range of treatment lengths, intensities, and some population-specific services, such as senior, seniors, criminal, legal, impacted folks. Uh, similarly, for substance use residential, with approximately 690 beds in this fiscal year. This slide enumerates, first, on the mental health residential type, uh, with, I'll just call your attention, I'm not going to read through the whole slide, but call your attention to where there are asterisks representing the as-needed bed type, and those without asterisks representing sort of the fixed number of contracted beds. On the substance use side, again, total of approximately 690 beds uh, of various uh, types, including residential treatment, what we call low barrier residential, therapeutic residences, also often known as recovery housing. We, call, we have been calling these residential step-down. And then a bed type, which we've not really spoken a lot about, is longer-term care supporting uh, people in recovery. Um, as Supervisor Mandelman already described, since 2020, SFDPH has opened nearly 400 new residential behavioral health beds that were conceived and planned under Mental Health SF. Um, we have approximately 44 beds remaining to be opened. This estimates a nearly 20% increase over a baseline bed count of 2,200. As you just described, the residential expansion plan was shaped by the 2020 Behavioral uh, Health Bed Optimization Report led by Dr. Naguzi Bland. The mental health legislation, a variety of input from stakeholders, 
and ongoing data review. During this period, we also identified a number of emerging needs, um, including mental health transitional housing in order to move people out of treatment and into transitional housing, and increased residential withdrawal management. Our current inventory is estimated at the 2550 beds, again, including estimated number of as-needed beds, which do fluctuate on need, depending on needs and availability. Also of importance, and we'll get to this later, I know, many of our as-needed beds, many of them locked subacute or mental health rehabilitation center beds, are subject to competition with other counties who are also seeking beds for their residents. Our expansion timeline is depicted on this slide since 2020, when, of course, we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic. We have opened first a managed alcohol program, followed in 2021 by psychiatric respite at Hummingbird Valencia. We contracted for more LSAT beds. We have budget for between 20 and 30 from the original plan. 2022 saw an opening of a large number of planned beds, including psychiatric skilled nursing facility, dual diagnosis transitional care in partnership with the probation department, residential care or RCF facilities, drug sobering, mental health co-op program, which I just mentioned, mental health, oh, sorry, mental health transitional housing. 2023 saw the opening of residential step-down and residential withdrawal management, the highest level of care involving people with severe, significant medical needs. We have been um, aiming to also increase what we are call, terming our enhanced dual diagnosis. This is care for people with, with both severe mental health and substance use disorder challenges who may also have physical health needs. We were able just in the last month to contract for some out-of-county beds as, our, as part of our uh, work to open the full complement of these as specified uh, in our original bed planning. We have a number of projects currently in progress. Uh, the first three are to complete the 400-bed plan, additional enhanced dual diagnosis, transitional age youth residential, crisis diversion or stabilization. Additionally, uh, what uh, we have taken advantage of other opportunities as they are emerging, again, in partnership with probation and at the recommendation of the Our City, Our Home Committee, we are opening, uh, probation is opening dual diagnosis women's therapeutic residence for justice involved involve women, some of those beds I understand are open. SUD stabilization, where we are working to create more spaces for sometimes pre-treatment uh, uh, within with uh, low medical need withdrawal management. We are also have several other projects that are pending approval uh, of our behavioral health bridge housing spending plan. This is a four-year grant from the state prioritizing housing for people uh, eligible or involved with care court. 
Supervisor Mandelman, you specifically asked us to estimate and impor importantly estimate uh, bed losses during uh, this period. So this slide describes um, our analysis. As, um, as I think this committee knows, we contract with our adult residential facilities, or ARFs, or RCFs, lots of abbreviations, and residential care facilities for the elderly, RCFEs. These specialize in services able to meet longer-term needs of behavioral health clients. They are voluntary sites. Um, these are also sometimes known as board and care. In our analysis, we found that residential losses among these contracted providers have been among the RCF or RCFE or board and care. We identified from fiscal year 1920 to present 12 mental health uh, programs, RCF, RCFEs, that closed or ended contracts with us. This included 11 in county, representing approximately 60 beds. During, at the time of each closure, we tr worked to transfer clients to other open beds already uh, in our as-needed contract portfolio. In some cases, the facility continued to operate after the end of the contract and clients remained in that site with payments covered by their um, SSI benefit. In a small number of cases, we transfer, worked to transfer clients to another level of care or, potential, or in some cases, were able to step down into community care. Um, we do not have visibility among, for the losses among board and care providers not contracted with us. So that is uh, an unknown uh, universe to us. Another issue which has come up before this board and is one that we are, uh, remain d diligently working on. We know both nationally, statewide, and locally that behavioral health workforce recruitment and retention are significant challenges. This is particularly true as localities and states seek to expand behavioral health services placing an ever-increasing demand on that skilled workforce to fill uh, planned expansions in behavioral health care. We know that vacancies can sometimes reduce the effective behavioral health residential capacity at times. We estimated among short-term mental health residential bed uh, capacity in the first uh, half of this fiscal year, at times the capacity was reduced by 15 to 20%. This is highly, uh, fluctuates a great deal as programs hire staff, open up more beds, and use flexibilities where possible. As you can imagine, providers work to maximize use of staffing to respond to needs and demands. Uh, the committee also asked us to address behavioral health residential uh, placement from jail. As you all know, jail discharge planning require, requires close collaboration. 
with multiple partners, including from criminal justice and community, including the actors you see here, the sheriff, probation, pre-trial diversion, public defender, DA, us, and behavioral health, as well as jail health services. The time to placement, when we look at our uh, placement data, depends on the many steps that occur both between uh, the health side and the criminal justice and public defender sides. Our observation is that jail health reports wait times have improved significantly over the past year to year and a half, and we estimate that wait time in the latter part of Qualand the last quarter of 2023 was approximately 14 days. I want to now turn to our work to estimate what we believe to be current behavioral health residential needs. In 2023, we updated our, the bed modeling uh, that was undertaken in 2020 to develop the preliminary recommendations for the number of beds needed to reach for 95% of clients to experience zero wait time. In this analysis, we used quantitative modeling, input from subject matter experts, supplemental wait time data, and, and triangulated this with a RAND analysis that was published in 2022. We were in, as I understand it, had much uh, more robust inputs into the model compared to the earlier work. Uh, and so we believe our estimations built upon and, and have the potential to be more precise than the earlier versions. The other thing that, of course, has changed since 2020 is that there have been, as Supervisor Mandelman already mentioned, a number of policy changes that have the potential to impact uh, what kinds of beds we need. Another project goal, which is still underway, is to develop improve our infrastructure to regularly track bed utilization and bed need. A lot of the work that we undertook this past, this current round was done manually, which is very time intensive for staff uh, and, and produces a result more slowly than we would have liked. So our preliminary recommendations for our residential care expansion are on the next two slides. For mental health residential treatment overall, we estimate an additional need for 50 beds. This is really bundling, as you saw on the earlier slide, a some heterogeneity in bed types with different lengths of stay, and specifically to include uh, clients with both severe mental health substance use diagnosis, seniors, and perinatal clients. We know that we, we believe that we need a between, as you already heard, 55 and 95 additional beds uh, in the category of LSAT, which is locked subacute treatment, also known as mental health rehabilitation centers. We, we came up with this estimate using our bed modeling, incorporated current wait times, and incorporated estimates about potential increase under SB 43. The next um, line 
uh, uh, really resulted from this very careful analysis of the need for what, what I'm terming, what we are terming behaviorally complex therapeutic or enhanced residential care, residential care for the elderly. We believe we need between 20 and 40 new beds. This is really to care for people who have we, we have found uh, are, are, are difficult to place that might have very specific uh, medical or mental health conditions where the majority of community providers do not accept them. These could include, for example, people who are registered sex offenders, people who may have committed arson, people who might have co, uh, ha may have traumatic brain injury or co-occurring dementia. And we realize this is a very specific gap that we need to address. We also, in our city, um, have, have, through our analysis, uh, have a gap in high complexity withdrawal management with people with both severe withdrawal medical needs as well as other medical needs. These are folks that community providers who do not uh, regularly monitor or prescribe and dispense medication at frequent intervals do not currently have capacity for. We have a contract with an out-of-county provider where we hope to fill some of this gap now. Our SUD residential step-down has been really uh, uh, in successful in very quickly filling up. This is a significantly expanded service under Mental Health SF, and this is really an estimate that we could likely use an additional 20 to 30 of these beds. Finally, a comment on state hospital beds, which is, of course, a critical and, and missing piece from local control. In terms of our bed modeling, it was, um, we were not able to make a specific estimate because we do not have all the data about admissions, length of stay, uh, folks who don't get admitted. The, bed, the beds, as you all know, are managed by the state. Using um, the RAND analysis from 2022, it showed that access to the bed, these beds, unsurprisingly, contributes, mitigates, worsens supply of other lower level bed types. Um, I also, just before I move on to challenges and strategies, I just want to say that there is, uh, in my view, surprisingly, no kind of standard of doing this kind of health planning analysis in the field. When you read the literature and understand what a variety of um, think tanks and academics propose, there is not really a solid uh, analytic approach that is sort of, that everyone does to sort of figure this out. So I just want to, the team, including my team, the team from the controller's office, really um, my own pushing, uh, really dug deep to try to create a model that is as accurate uh, and it sort of represents the best thinking that we know how. We have spoken with our colleagues at RAND to also get their input. Uh, but again, when you dig sort of under the hood of a lot of the projections that are sort of around in policy circles, 
they're really not based on much. And so we uh, are proud of this work as, you know, as imprecise and as sort of iterative as it will be. Um, okay, let me highlight some what I believe, what we believe to be our ongoing challenges. I think workforce recruitment and retention um, is uh, a serious issue which we are tackling and, and we'll need to do more. Procurement. Uh, procurement is, can be slow, as you all know. Uh, it can also sometimes be that smaller or out-of-county providers do not participate in our, or are aware of our procurement approaches. I already mentioned sort of placement for some very specific high-acuity, high-need clients. Uh, always looking to have better and clearer data. I mentioned local control and our, our, the, how we find ourselves competing with other counties uh, for as-needed bed resources. State hospital supply is not under our control. And then um, SB 43, as we mentioned, really represent uh, significant opportunity in my view uh, and also comes with uh, some additional challenges for us. So I wanted to share um, uh, some of our strategies here. Uh, and you know, I know that this is what this body is also uh, looking to help us and help the city do better in. We have been undertaking a number of efforts in workforce recruitment and, and retention. Our contracts uh, have all received a cost of doing business increase, which we intend to help uh, address staffing, at least in part, both recruitment and retention. Internal to the civil service, we are working with our human resources, both centrally and in DPH. Uh, there have been a number of citywide improvements in hiring. The reason why that matters to the residential care side is that we can step, when we can step down people into outpatient and lower level of care, it frees up some of the higher intensity levels of care. Uh, the controller is undertaking a behavioral health staffing and wage analysis, and that report is forthcoming, which we expect will provide some new uh, strategies. As you know, um, uh, DPH is seeking a competitive solicitation waiver to allow us to adapt more quickly, more nimbly to evolving mental health needs and quickly secure needed treatment beds. We are deeply appreciative of the board's unanimous support of this legislation as it moves through the legislative process. And we believe that at being able to access a diversity of providers will improve challenging client placement. So not um, a per se an increased number of beds, but really qualitative kind of beds that can accept some of the clients most challenging to place. We are working, to, we are improving all the time our, um, some of our data limitations and infrastructure in order. Uh, our goal is to be able to much more iterative iteratively and nimbly produce the kind of bed modeling estimates that are so needed. Um, the last two are policy issues, which is um, uh, local control 
for some of the highest intensity bed type state hospital, potentially locked subacute, really needs, um, a, in our view, uh, additional support through regional and potentially statewide strategies. Um, and then finally, we are really ex uh, excited um, as we implement SB 43, the mayor's executive order created an executive steering committee. Uh, Dr. Grant Colfax is chairing that committee along with uh, our colleague Kelly Dearman. And in that room, we are really working through operational issues and looking for solutions as we identify uh, what else is needed. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cunnins. Um, and I think that that is a lot of information, but um, important and informative and um, useful for level setting the conversation. If my call, and I have some questions for you, but I actually think if colleagues are okay, it would make sense to get through um, Kelly Dearman's rather short presentation and then deal with these issues, because I think it's all kind of wrapped up together. So, um, Kelly Dearman, Director of the Department of Aging and Adult Services. And I asked Director Dearman to be here um, because although the beds analysis and the, uh, the modeling project and the building out over the last um, you know, four years uh, based on Dr. Nagusa Bland's work has been largely a DPH problem, the majority of the board and cares, residential care facilities, residential care facilities for the elderly, adult residential facilities, I think I've touched many of the appropriate uh, terms, um, those are mostly not under contract with DPH, um, not necessarily under contract with, uh, with DOS either, but DOS is maybe has at least more, maybe more, um, I don't know, uh, of a notion of what's going on with those facilities, which is why I asked you to help us think and understand better what's going on, not just with the board and cares that are under contract with DPH, but the, the larger structure. Okay, thank you so much. Um, good morning, Supervisors. My name is Kelly Dearman. I'm the Executive Director for the Department of Disability and Aging Services. I want to thank you for the opportunity to present before you today on this matter. And while my department, as you've already stated, Supervisor Randleman, is not directly involved in this effort, I'm here today to provide information on the overall capacity of assisted living in San Francisco. I will also speak briefly on the programs run by my department that help to subsidize assisted living placements. The primary focus of my remarks today is to provide a snapshot of the city's supply of assisted living. As a private pay service that is regulated by the state, assisted living is not coordinated or managed by a city department. This update is an extension of work by the Long-Term Care Coordinating Council in 2018. And at Supervisor Mandelman's request, my team has pulled this snapshot together from state licensing reports. I'm happy to offer this information today to support this conversation. I'll do my best to answer questions that arise, though I note that this is not an issue that falls directly in my department's purview. So let's take a look at the numbers. 
When we think about assisted living, we like to look at capacity by size. This can give a sense of the type of facility. On the whole, larger facilities tend to be more high-end and have a higher price point. Smaller facilities, especially those with six or fewer beds, typically offer a more home-like environment. Historically, many of these were people's homes that they opened or transformed for care to care for others. According to state licensing data, we have about 2,700 beds in residential care facilities for the elderly. Those are our RCFEs. These house people age 60 and older. Today, most RCFE beds are in large facilities, those with 100 beds or more. We have 14 RCFEs of the smallest size. Those are board and care homes or facilities with six or fewer beds. For adults under age 60, we have 417 beds across 36 adult residential facilities or ARFs. Most of these facilities are small board and care homes. Two-thirds have six or fewer beds. Almost all beds are in facilities with fewer than 50 beds. These next two slides provide a sense of how capacity today compares to 2021 when we last provided an update to the board. Overall, trends remain generally the same. With respect to RCFEs, we have seen some losses and some gains. While we see a net loss in facilities, we see net growth in total beds. We have lost 5% of facilities, but we've seen a 16% increase in beds. Facility loss is driven by closure of smaller facilities with fewer than 16 beds. We have five fewer of these small facilities compared to 2021. Bed growth is driven by new licensure and expansion of larger facilities, particularly those with 100 or more beds. In terms of facilities for adults under age 60, we've seen a net loss since 2021 in beds and facilities. Overall, we have two fewer facilities and 21 fewer beds. This represents a 5% change, both in terms of facilities and beds. You may be noticing the changes in facility and bed count by size may not clearly align. As a reminder, these charts show net change for example, in the 16 to 49 bed category, two facilities with a total of 49 beds closed. During the same period, a new facility opened with 46 beds, thus a net loss of one facility and three beds in this category. These trends are a continuation of patterns we observed over the last several years. Finally, I'll briefly, briefly share about my department's programs that support low-income San Franciscans. I want to highlight three programs for you today. While our impact is small relative to DPH and focused within our network of services, this information may be useful to the board in considering more broadly the assisted living landscape and range of needs. The Community Living Fund program provides intensive case management with a focus on keeping people in the community rather than institutional care settings like skilled nursing facilities. A small subset of these clients receive subsidies to live in assisted facil living facilities. That's about 24 people each year. 
Their placement is coordinated by our contractor, the Institute on Aging. The average monthly subsidy is $4,400. Over the years, we have seen significant growth in the cost of these subsidies as the cost of care has increased. Ten years ago, the monthly cost was less than half of this level. HomeSafe is a statewide pilot in our adult protective services program that is supported by one-time funding from the California Department of Social Services. These funds make it possible for HomeSafe to facilitate long-term care placement for clients who are likely to lose their housing or live in unsafe conditions without this support. State funding is currently only available through June 2025 and the future of state funding for the program is uncertain. This is concerning because it would put considerable strain on local resources to ensure con continuity of ALF support for clients who may need care that is ongoing. Nonprofit RCFEs, finally, um, DOS has direct contracts with RCFEs that grew out of board ad backs several years ago. These support the viability of nonprofit RCFEs run by Self Help for the Elderly and Kimochi to support low income San Franciscans as part of the holistic spectrum these organizations facilitate. Together, these facilities have 46 beds. And with that, I'll conclude my remarks. Thank you, Director Dearman. Um, all right, colleagues, I do have a few questions I'd like to ask, and then happy to turn it over to others. Um, I'd like to bring um, uh, Dr. Cunnins back up if you're willing, well, whether or not you're willing. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I have, you know, one set of concerns around this issue of are we gaining ground, losing ground, or running in place? And you have identified in your presentation two of the issues. I have a more minor one, but it raises um, some concerns to me about how you're counting. Um, so the way DPH tracks um, this BEDS project on the website that's publicly available um, is, I think, useful in that it breaks out the different kinds of um, BEDS that are part of the expansion project, you know, and, and shows where, where these BEDS are in the process um, of uh, coming online. Um, one of the categories is residential care facilities, and there the the data the uh, the, the chart um, says there are 99 beds that have been brought online as part of this project. I don't think you're going to be able to answer this question right here, and there may be an answer. I I may not know everything, but um, we asked your department um, to break down where those residential care facility beds were. And we learned that uh, 23 of them are under a category of residential care facility, and it looks like they're in three different locations outside San Francisco, um, and look to be probably relatively, relatively small um, facilities. And then there's another um, very large chunk of those beds uh, being provided by a single provider. Um, in fact, the number that is being claimed and that I think is going into this is 76 beds. I don't think you're using or are even under contract for 76 beds with that provider. And so it, 
I think you have a contract for 46 in San Francisco, and I think you're using 12 somewhere else, and that adds up to 58. Um, and that's a my, you know, relatively minor discrepancy, 58 versus 76. But it makes me wonder about the counting that's going on under, under this bed count. So I don't necessarily need an answer now unless you have one. Let me, I mean, I was just going to say yeah. let's go back and reconcile. Let's, yeah, yeah. That, that would be a good one to figure out. But it does, it's a thing that makes me go, hmm. Um, all right, the other two, you've actually identified what I think are some pretty concerning trends and um, I want to dig in a little bit more on them. <laughs> so, and I think this is more of a problem on the uh, drug treatment side, um, but, but it actually may be a problem everywhere. But anyway, there's, there's the staffing challenges which look to be related to a potential loss in capacity of our beds of between 15 and 20% on average. The expansion <laughs> that we've undertaken and that we're counting as progress over these last years looks to be about 20%. And, and presumably in some facilities it's more than 15 to 20%, in some it's less. Um, that that's concerning there's all the second challenge that you've identified is the as needed beds and it sounds like for most of the beds for people with severe behavioral health needs those are as needed beds um, and we have no idea you know in, in in schools they talk about butts and seats um, we have no idea based on the numbers we're looking at today how many San Franciscans with severe, you may know, or someone in your department may know, how many San Franciscans with severe mental health needs are in those as-needed beds, and if that number is greater or lesser today than it was five years ago. But based on the way we're tracking these numbers, there's, unless you know the answer, I don't know whether we have more San Franciscans getting that level of care today than we did five years ago. I'm phoning a friend. <laughs> I mean, that's fine. And I think we're going to continue this to the call of the chair, and we'll continue to have this conversation. And I know that this is data that is hard to know. It may not have even been collected five years ago. It may not have been the way anybody was thinking about it. And, you know, in tracking this, we, we raise new questions. But those two things seem like, like they make me wonder, and I guess I'd like to have you try to address, have we made, how do we know that we've made progress on this beds problem in these categories, given those two concerns? Um, so thank you for, I mean, I think you got to the heart of, I think, what we're all concerned about, including me. Um, so let me, let me, I'm not sure, I, I'm going to go backwards in your, through your questions, I think. Um, so um, in terms of the intersection between impact of staffing on as-needed beds, we don't know that, meaning we apply for a placement, the facility accepts or doesn't accept, and we don't track if they're not accepting because right. all I'm not, we I'm know actually, is I'm actually fault. separating. Okay. I'm seeing the, uh, the, the staffing as a problem 
more on the, the beds it. that we're, we're buying. We're yeah. saying, give us 100 X. of these drug treatment beds, but there's only 85 Got it. because they're not staffed. And then I think there's another issue where I think, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how, how this works, we need a locked subacute facility for someone who was in the hospital at SF General and waited too long in that bed at SF General. They don't need to be in a locked hospital bed, but they can't really be sent out on their own either. They need to be in a locked facility. So we've purchased, purchased some number of those beds, but what I think you're saying is that we purchase them on an as-needed basis, which means there may be somebody from um, Riverside County in that bed right now. And so even though we're counting that as a bed that's part of our expansion, it's actually not occupied by a San Franciscan and it's not available for a San Franciscan. And so that person is still sitting in the hospital bed in San Francisco, gobbling up our general fund and not actually being getting the right level of care. So I'm seeing those as two sep Got separate it. problems. So just to then finish with this other part okay. is we have a contract with them which enables us to pay them when we use a bed. And that's right, we are competing with other counties. We calculate our as-needed beds. We know how much a particular facility has said they will give us when they have it. And we have calculated our as-needed beds really based on sense, average census uh, to come up with those estimates. Um, we, and I want to appreciate your question about five years ago compared today for these bed types. And I don't, we'll get back to you on that I'd and about a, whether those data are available. If, if I'd yeah. love a graph, I mean, to, to the extent that we can track how many San Franciscans with severe needs are in, um, are in locked subacute yeah. or skilled nursing beds. Because I think tracking this based on beds we've acquired is the wrong way to track it if we're interested in knowing how many beds yeah. we're actually using. I, I appreciate that. I think on the, uh, to go to the other part of your question is what we have good data about is increasing numbers of people being served, uh, in particular in our SUD system, uh, the different parts, residential, withdrawal management, residential step-down, plus, um, and that we do have a graph, and I think we've shared that with you uh, in the context of treatment on demand. Um, and so even when particular, um, there are particular staffing challenges, overall, we're getting treatment to more people. We are moving to expand treatment. Um, and treatment access. We also know we have opened some new services where there was zero before and now there's people using that service. So key examples are psychiatric respite, hummingbird, soma rise, drug sobering, um, as well as I would say bed types. Uh, one key example, uh, is the MINA project uh, in partnership with probation where there was no bed type of that category. And so we are increasing numbers of people served um, there. So I think um, while there are um, gaps at that are tr typically transient where beds scale down or up depending on staffing, Overall, there is an increase in residential care of people being served. 
I also, I know this is about residential care. I always feel obliged to mention the non-residential uh, important interventions we're making so that we can both prevent that high, higher level of care need and be able to have somewhere to step people down to. So from residential care into, for example, intensive case management, for example, having an office of coordinated care to head off uh, a, a severe need uh, or work with someone after a crisis to avoid, do a version of residential care. And I think that's was an important piece of the initial bed analysis in 2020 that we also tried to account for in this revised one. I take that point. I don't want necessarily want you to stop making it. It does, and I think I've said this before, um, it does drive me a little bit nuts because for more than a half century, people have been saying, if we just invested yes. more, downstream, we would reduce costs and we wouldn't need to spend as much on these very sick folks in these acute settings. And based on that, we've cut a whole lot right. of acute, and, so, and I know that you're not saying we don't need it. I'm not accusing you of that. I'm just saying um, I think it's good that we've expanded drug yeah. treatment and I think it's good that we've done these innovative programs on the front end. Um, that I think are frankly pilots. I mean, it's been, when I, soon after I started, I heard someone say San Francisco is a city of great programs and miserable systems. Um, like, we're doing some cool stuff and we'll see if it works around Soma Rise and around, um, you know, sobering centers and a lot of stuff, you know, the uh, hummingbird. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on the front end. Let's see what it takes to get people in the door. And I think we do have a real expansion in treatment, but where we, where I am feeling like there's a problem for a number of reasons is on these more acute but not hospital beds. The stuff that Anton de Gusebland back in 2020 said, this is our highest need, this is our biggest pain point. People in, at SF General have been saying the same thing. Nagusa Bland said, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50, if you combine the locked subacute and skilled nursing beds that were needed at the time, we have we think we've made some moves on it. We've, we've entered into some contracts for more beds, but we don't have great data on whether those beds were real or not, or whether we have more San Franciscans in those beds today than we did when Anton Nagusa Bland came up, uh, came up with that goal. And I just, I mean, I, we, got, we gotta focus on that yeah. problem and understand it and make moves Especially if we if we think we're going to conserve more people, and especially if we're going to like get. I mean, how many folks are there who are looping around? You know, maybe they met, they show up at Hummingbird, maybe they show up at you know Soma Rise. They're all over. They're certainly in jail, and we just need to have the right kind of bed for them. And we've known this for like ever, and we still can't seem to get it. Can't, can't seem to. Let, let me just uh, comment on that. I don't, I don't mean to distract. I didn't mean to distract from that, I think, very important yeah. central point. And uh, this is a case of um, market failure, which is we, um, and, and, and why, and what, at least in part, the bed legislation, we believe will 
uh, help resolve, which is we need, we, when we become aware of beds for purchase, there is a great deal of competition across counties for those beds. We do not, we have not been able to buy enough of them, so this is not um, a, been a budget problem. This has simply been a market availability, not simply, but been a market availability problem. So I don't want to diminish the need for new approaches, including our ability to procure more quickly. We expect that to have at least some impact. And again, with a lot of respect and gratitude for, for your work and what you have done, the 2020 report said, San Francisco, you have a problem because there aren't enough of these beds out there and you should look at building or, or acquiring them so that they're fully under your control. And we are four years later and still having the same conversation, um, which is frustrating. Um, I guess the last point or concern I would make before getting out of the way, because I know my colleagues have things they want to ask about, um, is on the R RCFE side. I think it is good that the RCFEs were part of Nagusa Bland's analysis. It is good that they were part of that analysis, because if those additional RCFEs had not been brought online, the 40-something loss that Director Dearman pointed out would be a 90-something loss, I believe. Like, so I don't think, um, I'm worried that, that the ARFs, that, that the ARFs are an orphan, um, that they sort of snuck into DPH land, mm -hmm. you know, because Nagusa Bland said this is part of the problem, and so it became uh, something that, our, that DPH worked on um, over the last four years, and I do think it is good that we brought more of those beds online, and, um, and, and, I, and I just... I don't think that anyone in this city government fully owns the problem of we, are, we have hemorrhaged these beds over decades. They are the place for people who are not going to make it successfully on PSH but don't always need to be in a locked facility. They're the place where my mother spent much of her adult life. They are a basic need if we're not going to institutionalize everybody and we've shown no interest nor should we in institutionalizing everybody or at least in in more uh, significant institutions and I don't think we are um, organized as a city between DOS and DPH or wherever else it might live to grapple with this need and I don't frankly think that some CUs that Supervisor Ronan and I can throw at things, you know, in, in, at a time when CUs are no longer a tool that are, are very effective at all. Like, that's not going to be the path to solving this problem. We, and nor is this, with all due respect to the fine people who I do not know, but I'm sure, but I'm, I'm sure they're fine people serving on the long-term care coordinating council, they're not getting it done. And they're not going to get it done because it's a little advisory body sitting off that nobody's paying any attention to. It doesn't, it's not a priority for the city. All right, I'll stop screaming about this, but I think it's, you know, I, I think we need to, even it's, it, whether or not it works its way back into your modeling, somehow as we go forward with our Prop 1 conversations and our BEDS conversations, somehow we have to reincorporate the ARF conversations into um, 
what, you know, a, a tangible goals that we're trying to achieve. Um, if I can just make one comment, which I think is really important to appreciate, that I want you and the committee to appreciate, is what is visible to us, what became visible to us through this, through our analysis, again, and I said it during the presentation, I just think it bears repeating, is placement for RCF level of care for very particular people who are indeed staying too long in hospital, uh, too long in too low levels of care, that is not a, a number, it's not a quantitative, but qualitative kind of service whereby certain providers will accept patients, clients that we have been unable to place. So it doesn't, uh, uh, I don't wanna, it's not arguing with what you just asserted, it's just this, what was very helpful about our work is really given us, laser, in addition to the locked subacute beds, given us sort of laser focus because of really understanding who is taking a long time to place with this very specific issue, which we believe is solvable with the right provider. All right. Thank you. Um, I have more things I could say or ask, but I'm, I'm, I don't want to take up all the airspace here. So, uh, Supervisor Ronan. Thank you, and thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for, for calling this hearing, and thank you, um, uh, Dr. Cunnins, for um, all this information. Um, I wanted to sort of uh, kind of reply a little bit to some of the things that Supervisor Mandelman said, specifically around this idea that San Francisco has a lot of great programs, but really poor systems. Um, that was what Mental Health SF was supposed to fix. And um, I just want to say that, you know, I do have some frustrations with how things are going, but I also think things are moving in the right direction. And what Mental Health SF did is it created sort of four different parts that are supposed to create a coordinated system of care. And the thing is, you can't really think about beds alone if you don't think about, you know, how people uh, get into services, how they um, are tracked throughout the system, how their different providers talk to each other, how, um, you know, they're, uh, they move within the system. Um, and 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 uh, how we we get them back into the system when they fall off, because especially when it comes to substance use disorder, um, well, and and mental illness, it, it it it's very rarely you know a one-time straight track. It it, it there's usually movements uh, between care that goes up and down throughout a person's life and, and, and different periods. And so um, I, I, I do wanna say that we're, there's never gonna be a time where we, we are like, yes, mental health SF is fully implemented and the system is working perfect. It's, 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 it's a non-sexy, non-like, now we're, now we're gonna call victory. Um, because it's it's a constant challenge and it's a constant, you know, sort of building up of 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 a functional system that will never know 
like now it's all perfectly working or it's, it's not. Having said that, I have seen improvements um, that continue to, to move in the right direction. And I think it will take a lot of vigilance from this body. And I think it'll take a, you know, a, a visionary, visionary leaders to, to, to move it all in the right direction and, and see, see leaps of changes. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention that, that, you know, it is important to have a beds optimization hearing, but it's hard to, 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 to deal with this hearing when we're not dealing with the other parts of the system. So I guess, I, I, you know, I have a few questions um, around data workforce uh, shortage, coordination, and then um, the healthcare service center, which is the one part of Mental Health SF that, you know, is sort of stalled as I see it. Um, so my first question is, you know, I, I agree, you know, it's, I, I agree that there is no method out there that's sort of the agreed upon method for deciding when you have the right mix of beds. But as we struggle with this question, and it would be great if, if Mental Health SF would create that method that can then be used throughout the country. And one of the biggest problems that we've had is just a lack of data. And what, what's been so much better in these hearings from the ones we started off with, Supervisor Mandelman, when we were literally have our brains exploded when the director of the uh, of behavioral health didn't know basic information because they hand wrote all of their um, you know their their charts and their data and we I mean we just we we couldn't review as a body what was needed or where priorities should should go for the budget because there literally was just a complete dearth of information to now we have like some actual estimates which is you know light years ahead but i would love to hear more about and this is not something you might be able to give us right now but what 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 is the actual methodology how what do you what do you how are you making these estimates and and what do you need to do it to to make them more and more accurate as we move forward. So I know, for example, that the move to Epic is gonna make it a lot easier for us to get the real-time data that we need to, to know where we have a dearth of, of, of beds and services. Um, but that, uh, and this I learned in our pre-meeting to this hearing, that um, federal law prevents uh, substance use disorder data being included in the same chart under EPIC. Well, that just makes no sense and also makes it incredibly difficult for us to create a methodology that would make sense. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, a, a little bit more in detail about how you're making these, these estimates, um, which, you know, we know are imperfect, um, and what we need to do in order to, to get a really reliable estimate, in, in, in addition to the points that Supervisor Mandelman uh, brought up, but 
but these sort of larger policy issues um, that are we're facing. Um, let me let me talk conceptually about the you know the making estimates, and we'll beg forgiveness from the people listening that may know that know more than I do. So basically, what modeling does is create a series of inputs. Um, so things like um, length of time to admission, length of stay within a particular uh, care setting, and then transition to a subsequent care setting, and tries to take an estimate of what that means for numbers needed in order to reduce wait time uh, to virtual zero, whether that is same day for sort of acute care services or within 24 hours for longer term care. Um, what is challenging and required a lot of manual work, some of which um, I'm getting uh, assistance. Um, um, so one of, one of the benefits of the transition and current state is that there isn't a single uh, by and large medical chart. We mostly use avatar for our in-county, um, uh, many but not all of our in-county providers. Um, and then for out-of-county providers, there isn't a single common record and there isn't a single way that referrals get made and then wait time and then uh, admission date or time gets recorded. Some of the opportunities of Epic, which will cover really most of our systems, will be to be able to routinize, make automatic, referral to admission, to discharge, to next level of care. Um, there is going to be much more ability to centralize that referral information instead of having it in different silos. What Epic also offers is the opportunity to have reports uh, that can um, sort of present these data without uh, as much manual tabulation. Another piece of the work that we are undertaking is to transition to um, uh, data systems that will make pull extracting data when in non-EPIC uh, environments more automatic. A comment on SUD, um, uh, substance use disorder treatment. Um, what is um, the challenge there is that federal, after significant analysis by our collective teams, federal confidentiality law prohibits sharing of substance use related information without the explicit consent of a client or patient um, into a general medical record. And so the an electronic medical record needs to keep that be able to keep that information separate, which is not something actually sort of it's in opposition to what uh, electronic medical records are intended to do. And so for the moment, that, those, that record will be kept separate, but uh, working to further strengthen as we have been reporting and summit to be able to accomplish the tracking and metrics that we know are so important. 
And so, for example, when, like, what would, what would be interesting, you know, f and what I would like to see for the residential expansion preliminary recommendations, or, or you know, <coughs> any of these charts, is to have the current wait time. You know, the current, because that, I think that, that tells us a lot more than, <coughs> than the estimate of, of, of additional beds we need. Um, and that's been, been something that's always been really hard hard to get, but I think that 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 gives us a much better sense of, of what's happening. Um, and then when is the the controller's workforce report coming out? Because we um, let me let me get back to you. Um, I know it is um, soon. I know that's not very precise. Let us get back to you. Okay, because we've been you know I mean obviously it's way overdue and we've been waiting for that and that is so much of the issue and the problem that that we're dealing with um and then um uh you know i i guess if if you could also just you know for me this is always you know what i think is frustrating and i don't want to speak for you supervisor mandelman but i know we we discuss it all the time is that um you know, we see we see the work that you're doing, which is you know, which is which is all moving in the right direction, but then we have these examples in our district of people that are just languishing, whether you know on the street or that just continue to do that hamster wheel, from the street to the psych emergency services to jail back on the street, and and we don't see that 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 change and I guess I'm just wondering if you could I always want to describe just like give me an example so street crisis you know is called to a site with someone on the street who is in in crisis um, you know they determine that person needs help so they either have to get that person's voluntary consent to go somewhere or they you know, in certain situations and hopefully soon to be improved, they can conserve the person and then and then take them. Where do they take them? And then what happens once they go to that site to make sure that they're going to the next level of care as opposed to being released right into the street? Because that's that's the key to making the system better. And, and, and the way Mental Health SF is written is that it's really the Office of Coordinated Care that is supposed to be managing and have control over that situation. Where are the beds available? What are the wait times? What do we need for this person? What's the ideal? Do they have a case manager? That case manager knows where they hang out, so can go get them if they need to bring them back. All of those things. And I just don't have a sense of, of really, how is that working? I, what is what is the state of the Office of Coordinated Care in, in, in being fully functional and able to do that? Um, so I appreciate the question, and I, I just want to acknowledge, as you as many of you know, when there are particularly challenging situations, I am personally and directly involved. Um, we are in a very and so let me say that. And I know that um, challenging cases are many still. I also know that, uh, and just want to remind my, all of us, that when people get better and stabilize, they become invisible. 
And so the successes are less visible than, than the folks who are, we are still uh, working with. So the Office of Coordinated Care, in, in my view and our view, uh, is, is really uh, extraordinary. We are, I believe, the only county in San Francisco that really has this function of uh, an office and multiple teams who are both in the field and in an office working across systems aiming to uh, a company, whether it is by case management, by direct outreach, by coordinating care with providers, this is not a function that is being robustly built out, as far as I know, anywhere else. So what it means is when there is a challenging situation on the street, there is, uh, or whether it was initiated by a street crisis response team or whether it's been initiated by someone in one of your districts coming to you, to us, we have now the capacity to follow people and interact with people who are in the community, maybe not in care, and we are the, the office of coordinated care is the initial care um, with the goal of transitioning the person into something that is uh, not street-based necessarily, that is not um, ad hoc, but it is uh, planned and, 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 and organized. There are there is multiple tables for case conferencing now across departments. That is not something that existed uh, previously. This is city leadership, not just DPH. Just wanna, a lot of it in the context of the street conditions and street work led by DEM uh, and really coordinated across departments. There are um, multiple, uh, in the case conferences, this is an opportunity to really try to problem solve solutions. A has not worked, B has not worked, let's try C. Um, I think there's also uh, leadership to consider um, when involuntary care is appropriate systematic assessment and escalation for that involuntary care. When uh, placement uh, in a residential setting, whether voluntary or involuntary, is what the team, uh, the clinicians believe to be needed, there is um, uh, active problem solving around this. We are, um, I see you, Supervisor Melderman, um, always looking for the answer and always looking for if something's not working to try the next thing. This is, I think, what SB 43 uh, represents is new opportunities where we have not um, legally been able to move to an involuntary option, uh, working very closely with the conservator's office on this uh, with Ms. Dearman and her team. Um, so I believe that there is a change cu culturally from a sense of once the person is not seeing me, I, I don't know where they are, to this person needs our help and we are gonna stay with that person until stability 
because we have team and resources to do so, and that is now a realistic expectation. Really great to hear. Um, and then um, my last uh, question, I want to take advantage of the fact that Tanya Mera is here, is to hear um, a little bit more about the coordination um, you know, between folks that are in jail and um, you know, how they are linking in with the system and getting support and, and help, if that's okay. Good morning, everyone, or almost afternoon. Um, thank you for your question, Supervisor Ronan. Uh, we're fortunate in that we have a very long history of collaborating closely with behavioral health services. Um, unlike most counties in the state, because our jail health care is run by a division of the Department Public of Public Health, and because we're an integrated member of the health network, it allows for much greater coordination than I've seen really anywhere else. Um, I think one of the points Director Cunnins made earlier that is really important to highlight is how complex release from jail is. Um, if it was completely under the control of healthcare providers, uh, we would be able to say, here's the referral date, here's the admission to program date, and that's clean data that clearly reflects the wait time for a bed. But unfortunately, there are many more factors involved. Um, and that's part of what I love about working in the criminal justice system, the complexity and having to understand and collaborate with so many systems. But it is also profoundly resource intensive to steer an individual person through a very complex system. So just as an example, the court needs to be on board. So that includes the judge. We need to have agreement between district attorney and public defender. There may be probation involved. The case may switch courtrooms um, or an attorney may be reassigned. And then we often have to restart the whole process over again. Um, these are just some examples. And then of course, getting the court and the sheriff's department to speak the same language so that the court order to release the patient is honored. Um, making sure the patient agrees to a TB test and understands it's required before placement. Um, the same with the COVID test, uh, getting a critter clearance. Unfortunately, a lot of our psychiatric patients, even though we monitor them closely, um, will discover may have, and critter is probably not the best terminology to use, but may have lice or some other issue that has to be treated before the person can go. And often there are psychiatric um, symptoms that might interfere with that. Another example, and in fact, this is a case that we, has uh, occurred this week. Um, there is a woman we've been trying to get into an available bed at Baker Places for three weeks. Every week, a warrant out of another county shows up. First, it was one county we rescheduled placement and then another warrant showed up because in that one week period, she failed to appear in court in Alameda. Um, and fortunately, because of our close relationships, not only with County Behavioral Health, but also with the Sheriff's Department, we were able to get Nick Gregoratis from the Sheriff's Department, he's prisoner of legal service, get on the phone, call Alameda, get the warrant lifted. So we're now actually able to place this woman, but it was delayed for three weeks because of all these warrants. So it's frustrating, but it's 
and it requires very skilled and resilient and fiery social workers that are going to keep pushing all these systems. Um, and so I would say that the issue isn't a lack of collaboration and communication between DPH partners, but rather the complexity of the overall system. And do you have some ideas of how you could make it easier? Well, I will say that CalAIM legislation that is specific to the justice-involved population is, is really, it's a great example of when state legislation is being created from my dreams. <laughs> um, I mean, it's really forcing all these partners to work together in a way they've never had. Um, it's saying, Sheriff's Department, you have to communicate with healthcare providers and you have to do it proactively, not just in response to a question. Um, counties across the state, you have to enroll people from other counties in your jail into Medi-Cal. Doesn't matter what county they're in, you can enroll them while they're in jail and in that county. Um, it's creating communication networks between communities across the state. The state. It's incentivizing a lot of this work because we are now able to bill Medi-Cal for services provided in the jail. You know, the opportunity to gen generate revenue in a carceral setting, not just jails but prisons too, it's, it's revolutionary, it's transformational. Um, and that's really exciting. It's also just really increasing the expectations around what services need to be provided um, in jail. Um, so I do really see that legislation as being transformative in terms of forcing some of these issues and forcing the collaboration, um, which fortunately in our county isn't, you don't have to force too hard. We already really work well together, but you know, there's nothing like legislation mandating it to really make it happen. Okay, thank you. Mm. I'm done, thank you. All right, um, Supervisor Stephanie. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman. I just um, have a few questions for Dr. Cunnins. Thank you for your presentation. Um, really quick, on the 2,551 residential beds, how many are out of county and which counties do we typically um, contract with? Or, uh, and if you don't have that number now, I you mean, can get you know what, let me, I have versions of it. Um, on the two slides, um, Um, I'm realizing it does not, but we'll get that to you. Okay, thank you for that. And let's see, I, I was struck by the low number of beds with regard to the alcohol sobering center at only 12. That seems like a decrease from numbers we used to have when it was Joe Healy. It, it just seems like a huge decrease and same with the drug sobering center at 20. And then to see only eight beds for wraparound services for women is quite alarming to me. Um, so alcohol sobering is is not what was Joe Healy. Joe Healy is was the detox it, is well, withdrawal yes. management. So withdrawal alcohol management. sobering is a DPH run service for people to come in who might be intoxicated um, and um, receive supports twenty four seven. Uh, I don't think that's a change from prior. I will double check, but that is not the withdrawal, that is not withdrawal management. Okay, and so then that, the residential withdrawal management is at 66? Yes. Okay, 
And then when you say residential step down recovery housing, what do you mean by recovery housing? So it means uh, for, so it's a, it's a state category, although not uh, reimbursed. Um, it is for people exiting residential substance use disorder treatment, for people who um, are um, wanting to live in a place that supports their recovery, there's employment supports, there's social skills supports, and people are uh, required to participate in outpatient treatment as well. So it's really a step down from the highest intensity uh, treatment. It can go up to 24 months. I think importantly for people who may not have stable housing to have a, a, a safe and supportive environment. Okay, and for the state hospital beds, um, you said admission data needed to make a recommendation. I'm just wondering if you have a list, a, a number of people in San Francisco that are actually on a waiting list for those beds. We, and I'll, I'll get that to you. What we know from our own hospital, from Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, I don't think we have a citywide number and I would need to check with my team. So. Okay, I think we need that. I mean, to understand, to get to the need, it seems to me if there is a list, and when, I, when I've been to SF General several times and I've asked these questions, it seems to me they've always said we need this many more beds because we can't get them into state. And so just to know how many people are on the list citywide, I think would be, I think that would be good to know. Um, the other thing, um, you know, on the procurement, when you said, you know, in some cases, unable to obtain available beds because a provider did not participate in the RFP process, um, it is just so disturbing to me that given the severity of the crisis we're in, that people's lives are at stake, and, you know, we say, I'm sorry, we can't get you into bed because you didn't fill the RFP in time, whatever. It just seems to me, again, the, the comment about we have miserable systems. Um, I'm just wondering if the competitive solicitation waiver will help with this. If, how do we get around that? If it just seems so counterintuitive to me when someone is in a life-threatening situation of substance use disorder or a severe mental health crisis that we can't get them into a bed because of a of an RF. You know, someone didn't fill out the paperwork on time. Um, it's not a healthcare system we should be proud of. So, and I'm not, I, I'm, I'm I saying agree. nationwide. It's not just San Francisco. Right. I, it, I just listened to um, a podcast this morning on NPR about Portugal and, you know, some of the things, why it's so much easier for people to get the care over there than we have here. And this is, was a glaring example to me this morning. Um, so I, I agree. And what the, the sort of, just to play that out more explicitly, so mostly, for example, locked subacute beds are out of county. If we identify, for example, a new provider who comes online and has beds to offer, we need a mechanism as a city to be able to pay that provider. Historically, mostly the way we do that is we put an RFP out, gee, would you like to, and I am not the finance or contracts person, I just wanna acknowledge that, we put out an RFP, we create a mechanism by which we can pay them. That, that is often through an RFP, if it's an out-of-county or new provider, they haven't respond. They don't know about an RFP. They haven't responded to an RFP, and then that delays our ability 
to use or make in our, a financial arrangement to pay the provider for that bed. And we believe that with the bed legislation, it means, oh, there's a new provider offering beds, or maybe they've expanded. We are able to much more quickly, without, a procure, without an RFP process, say, this is a bed type that San Francisco needs. We want to act on it expeditiously to be able to place San Franciscans. Okay. And following, following up on my question from the November hearing uh, on the treatment on demand report, I'm just wondering if DPH has started any conversations with Salvation Army about acquiring more beds at their Harbor Light residential treatment facility. I know they have beds. I know they're uh, cheaper than a lot of the beds we contract for. And if it's beds that we need and they're beds that are there, why aren't we contracting and getting those beds? Um, we have been in conversation with them. We have increased uh, our use of Salvation Army beds, and there's additional opportunities with the, um, and I don't want to misspeak, but with the bridge housing funding from the state. So we are aiming um, to take advantage of, of opportunities to open up more services where we have identified need, and this is one example. Okay, and I know out of the 2,551 beds, um, some of them sit empty on a daily basis. I'm wondering if, we, if we're able to understand how many beds actually are sitting empty, and I know Supervisor Mandelman brought this up. I know Minna has a lot of open beds right now, and I still can't seem to get a grasp on how many beds sit open and why. And again, is this a systems failure as to why they sit open, and why can't we fill those beds? So one, let me say a couple of different things. Um, on our fine treatment-SF, one can see what the capacity is of beds where somebody can self-refer how many open beds there are on a daily basis. Um, some beds where, we, where there's an assessment of level of care, meaning locked subacute, no one is self-referring there, for example, or a skilled nursing facility, um, those are as needed, and so they don't per se sit empty. Where um, then some beds, like you mentioned the MINA, that is a bed type that um, our colleagues in probation control entry of, that is not, uh, DPH does not place people in those beds. So that there's a, a nuance uh, with, in particular with MINA. Okay. Um, in regard to the 14-day wait time for jail discharge uh, to behavioral health residential placement, I'm curious as to where they are staying during those 14 days and who is ensuring that they actually make it to their placement at the end of those 14 days. Maybe Tanya would have. I'm going to ask my colleague, Tanya Mira, to come up for that. Hello. Um, so the 14 days is an average. It's not just for like, residential mental health beds. So that would include beds at Billy Holiday, dual diagnosis, um, a variety of levels of care. Um, and during that time, they are in jail, receiving treatment in jail, and then we actually ensure that a provider takes the person out of custody from County Jail 1 and delivers them to the residential program, ensures they're checked in, ensures they have their medication, all the necessary paperwork, um, and any other needs they might have. Okay. That's, thank you. That's yeah, helpful. Thanks. Of course. Um, 
a few other questions in terms of the severe staffing shortages across our mental health facilities, and I know Supervisor Ronan was addressing this too, and I don't know if the controller's workforce report will address this, but w what are the strategies that we're employing to make sure that we don't have a shortage? Are we doing anything out of the, you know, are we thinking outside the box, or are we looking to the legislature to try to develop something, or are we looking to the executive department to try to, to, try to get to this shortage? Um, thank, I appreciate the question very much. Um, just wanna go back uh, just for a second. Um, we have about 470 out-of-county beds. Um, I will get you a list of uh, what, um, what counties those, those are in. Um, that represents about 19% of our total beds. Um, I also just confirmed that uh, our alcohol sobering has not decreased number of beds. That's been what it has been. So okay. just to clarify. Thank you. Um, so we are employing and have employed sort of a range of strategies, including um, finding ways to increase um, contracted rates for services in order to be able to compensate staff more uh, adequately. We, um, for services where we are uh, hiring people, we are um, working to hasten uh, and simplify human resources while maintaining fairness procedures. We have been working with SEIU to enhance pipeline and recruitment and placement programs. Um, we expect, again, as you heard already, the controller's wage and staffing analysis to provide for more recommendations. I um, welcome, um, you know, we're, we are looking for more good and ideas, and I, I think just the context is important, which is it is not solely a San Francisco problem, and that, of course, uh, and needs both state and federal partnership as well. Okay. Are we tracking how many people um, who show up for treatment, either self-refer or trying to get to treatment through DPH as many systems? Are we tracking how many people who show up um, are actually turned away, and then are we documenting why? So I think as we discussed in um, our last, uh, in the treatment on demand hearing, we are working with our um, providers where there is self-referral to understand when people are turned away, what happens to those folks, our goal is if they are not appropriate for that particular level of care, that they are referred and, and through coordination into an appropriate level of care, whether it's through our, uh, ideally through our Office of Care Coordination. Our goal is to not have people turned away to no service, right? That is ultimately the absolute objective, that we don't lose people to care that people are not turned away with no other alternative. Okay. Um, one thing that I've learned that, so residential treatment beds are not a part of HSH's coordinated entry system. And, but over 46% of adults experiencing homelessness on our streets have a substance use or serious mental health disorder. And I'm just wondering, again, this is kind of a systems question, has DPH explored the option of including treatment beds 
in the overall coordinated entry system. So it's a really, um, let, let me answer it by saying we work very closely with HSH. I think you, the, the sort of how common mental health and substance use needs are in permanent housing, permanent supportive housing is extremely um, important in thinking about how we design and implement those services. Our services, by and large, are not permanent housing. They are temporary. And I think that is a characteristic that is different from the coordinated entry system, which, as I understand it, is really aiming to get people into permanent housing. And so what we are doing often for higher levels of care is assessing folks clinically, using clinicians, using level of care assessments, in order to place people correctly. So the assessment and placement functions are, are, uh, are different. And so it would be something that I would need to talk in more detail with HSH about. Okay, I think that's all, thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Stephanie. Supervisor Melgar. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Mandelman uh, and uh, Supervisor Ronan for your work over the years on this issue. Um, I know very little about it as much as <laughs> I've learned from you guys. Um, so I wanted to ask like a completely different line of questioning because the programming is not, you know, uh, you guys have it. <laughs> You're, you, you will continue to, to go there. So my question is about, it, about the, the beds. It seems, you know, being new to this committee that the way we're counting the need is whack. Uh, it seems it's, you know, like, uh, what do we have in this flavor, this flavor, and are they full? And therefore, is that the need? Which, you know, I've been in San Francisco since 1982. There's always been a need. Um, and I represent District 7, which has Laguna Honda, and we just went through this whole year of uh, say, oh my God, there is a need. Um, and, you know, we had this population that, it, you know, and this other population that had very high needs, and then we got into trouble with Medicare I mean so obviously there's there's a need out there for beds in California not just in San Francisco so my question is why aren't we treating this as infrastructure why is it that on the Laguna Honda campus that we have acres and acres of land in an entire building that is decaying into nature and instead of knocking it down and having an institutional master plan that you know <laughs> includes this need, we're just leaving it be. So we just redid the institutional master plan for the first time since 1994, and all that the Department of Public Health did is put in some offices into the first building and left the rest of the buildings alone. So rather than paying for a bed and competing with Riverside, how come we are not building the beds and having Riverside pay us? I mean, obviously, you know, there's a need where I'm glad that, you know, the governor put Prop 1 on the, you know, on the ballot and hopefully we'll, but, but why aren't we thinking about that as infrastructure? So we now have put affordable housing in our capital plan as infrastructure. We have, you know, the emergency fire system as infrastructure. Like, why isn't this in infrastructure? Because, you know, we have always, like, the Department of Public Health is our largest funded department in the city budget for a reason. We prioritize that, right? And this is 
part of what we need. It is a system of care. Rather than cannibalizing the beds at Laguna Honda and then getting into trouble, why don't we acknowledge that we need this and then and then build it and then figure out a way to pay for it, including having San Mateo, you know, buy some of our beds too. Because it seems to me that if we uh, own the infrastructure that is necessary, we could make adjustments to the program as needed rather than waiting for like are there extra beds on Mina or you know like some of the providers have specialized on one particular flavor so that's you know what I wanted to ask uh, because you know it seems to me that we've been talking about this for decades and decades and instead of like planning ahead we're always like catch as catch can every year during budget season okay thank you I think this is the moment where the kids start snapping anyway <laughs> Um, <laughs> I can't speak to the decades and decades. I think I think you're raising um, issues that we've that a number of us have been discussing, and I, I think it's reasonable to understand what are um, ca can we do it? What are the costs? What are the impacts? What are the staffing considerations, et cetera, in order to accomplish that? I think. Um, Historically, and I also want to just acknowledge this is not just true of San Francisco, this is really national. Most of the ways that counties do business, behavioral health business, is through contracted community-based providers. This is true my prior employment and, and certainly true here. And um, typically uh, contracting for that service and the sort of accompanying infrastructure. But, I think as we've been describing, for some bed types, there's weaknesses in that infrastructure. And, and so this, I think you're highlighting an advantage of a different approach. Um, yes. Um, and, you know, it seems like lots of other things uh, in our city. You know, when everybody's in charge, Noah's the charge. Um, and I am wondering, like, who's going to take the leadership to make this happen? Because, you know, I, I, I admire your work. And I've, since you've gotten here, I'm like, yeah, there she's going. You know, but, but this is an issue that's, you know, beyond your decision-making authority, right? So I'm wondering, like, there needs to be, like, some leadership and some vision to say, this is something that we need to tackle. Um, and, you know, other counties do this. You know, I think San Francisco is unique because, uh, first of all, we, we do have an issue that is affecting our economy. It's affecting our political landscape. It, you know what I mean? It's taken over a lot of the conversation. So I'm, you know, uh, hoping that, you know, in, in you presenting the challenges and the opportunities that, you know, you take also the opportunity to just speak about like the long term and how we could be leaders in this um, and have a vision that will address the, the issues in a systemic way and in an infrastructure way rather than, you know, the, the way that other people do it. Thanks. Appreciate the comments. Yeah. Um, thank you, Supervisor Melgar. We should um, open this up to public comment. I will just say, I mean, the Laguna Honda conversation has been frustrating for me because in a number of those presentations, we were told that there was a working group that was meeting that was going to present us at some point with a, a notion of how some of the beds that were behavioral health beds, at, that were functionally behavioral health beds at Laguna Honda might happen either on that site or somewhere else or how we could 
meet some of the the needs that we had been meeting by you know at, at, by jamming folks into Laguna Honda who maybe that wasn't exactly the right place for them in that at least in the way in which they were being placed into Laguna Honda and um, it feels like that conversation is a missed opportunity. My office has asked, has followed up a number of times to see um, what happened with that conversation. And the fact that I haven't heard back leads me to believe that the answer is not much. I have said on, I don't know how many times at this board that I have noted that the Department of Public Health is going to be going to the voters or thinks it's going to the voters in November with a bond proposal. And yet we have this great unmet capital need now prop one affords us an opportunity to um, draw down capital dollars if we have a plan to spend it but i'm not entirely convinced that that we do as of yet to to address this need maybe it's at the laguna honda site but there's a ton of you know there's sf general there's a building that was envisioned to be the adult residential facility. There's a locked subacute building um, or, or floor uh, at, uh, at uh, General that I don't think we're fully using. And there's endless opportunities for partnership with other counties that have the same problem. Supervisor Ronan. Yeah, sorry, I'm just briefly. Um, I thank you. I think your comments are so right on and uh, Supervisor Mandelman and I have been asking this for years, um, and the 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 reasoning way before uh, Director Cunnins got here was capacity and money, and so I'm just wondering if uh, Measure One or might provide the type at least the, the the funds to be able to finally accomplish something like this. I mean, the dream for me is that we'd have this also 24-hour mental health SF service center that just like general is the only, you know, trauma one level hospital and everyone knows if you have a traumatic event, that's where you go in the region, that if you're having a mental health crisis that you would go to the mental health, you know, uh, service center could be on the first floor, for example, right? Um, it, it just, we, we do need, um, some vision around around these bigger projects and I understand that capacity has been the major issue but at least if we got the funding piece figured out then maybe we could find the capacity to go along with it. Thank you Supervisor Ronan. Um, all right let's go to comment. public comment. Yeah. The comment it is. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Pardon. Uh, we now invite members of the public uh, who have joined us today who wish to speak on this item to line up now right along those windows to your right. Uh, and please come forward to the lectern and all speakers will have two minutes to speak. Good afternoon. My name is Adrian Maldonado. I am the director of Harbor Light Center. Prior to that, I was the founding director of the MENA Project. Prior to that, I worked eight years in San Mateo County Correctional Health. I ran the Choices Drug Program in the jail a co-occurring program model on Delancey Street. I'm also a graduate of Delancey Street. So a couple of things in context. I got to Harbor Light on June 1st, 2023. There were 30 people in Harbor Light. Currently today, there are over 100. I had one staff member. Currently, I'm fully staffed. The difference, I think, is that we started treatment on demand. My colleague Steve is here from the Salvation Army. We have about 60 beds funded by the city in Harbor Light. Half of the beds we have, another 60 plus available, are not funded by the city or anyone else. Salvation Army pays for it. 
We also provide transitional housing post-treatment at the Joseph McPhee Center on Valencia, 100 people, that we're funding completely. Now, there are other providers in the city that have enormous contracts, and I'm not here to disparage their efficacy or how good of an idea that is. What I do know is, when I went to the MENA and I left the MENA, there were 70 people completely full all the time. Harbor Light, three-fold increase, people getting clean. That means they're not going to jail, they're not calling emergency services, they're not being 5150, they're not using drugs, and they're going to Joseph McPhee Center graduating. I have eight of them working at Harbor Light now. We know what we're doing. We could be the leader in San Francisco, and what they pay at Harbor Light compared to other programs is a deal. We should be long farsighted. It's frustrating because this is not complicated. If you offer people a culture, a community, teach them how to live in recovery, and then offer them the support when they graduate clean and sober so they can continue that lifestyle, they won't be on the street in a tent smoking dope and going to jail. Speaker's Thank time you. has elapsed. Thank you much, Adrian Maldonado, for addressing this committee. Next speaker, please. Hi, <clears throat> excuse me. Hi, thank you. I am uh, Adam Francis. I'm the Senior Director of uh, Advocacy and Policy for the San Francisco Marin Medical Society. We represent uh, 3,500 physicians across both counties. Um, thank you so much for this hearing today. It was extremely informative. Really appreciate the, um, the data, if imperfect, is, is getting us closer to a sense of what we all feel is happening. Um, I want to take a moment to, to move away from the data a little bit and think about, you know, these are real human lives that we're talking about. Uh, it's not just numbers of beds. Uh, these are mothers and sons and brothers. Um, and when they fall through the cracks, it's, it's devastating on an individual level. It's also soul-crushing for the providers who are taking care of them. Uh, they're, they're spending hours, weeks, days, months trying to find places for these patients to be, um, and it's really demoralizing when they can't take care of patients the way they've been trained to, the way they've spent years and years and years educating themselves, going into massive debt uh, to take care of these patients, and then not being able to do that is, uh, is very um, demoralizing. I think... You know, we, we talk about uh, the problems, of course, um, of, of access, and uh, we've seen really successful programs at the state level for increasing workforce to deal with that access issue. Uh, the, the Cal Healthcare's program, for example, is a tremendous program at the state level, but almost none of those dollars are going to San Francisco. Uh, for various reasons, but mainly, you know, in other areas of the state, there's there's a there's a more demonstrable dire need, and uh, but we we have needs as well. And so, as we think about training the new generation of of care providers, as we think about building our infrastructure, those are all very long-term solutions. When right now we have uh, an example of immediate solution in workforce incentives that I really encourage you all to pursue. Uh, because we can make a difference immediately on that 20, 15 to 20 percent of uh, beds that aren't being staffed. Those are beds that we could be using right now if we had the workforce to do that. And we have the workforce. We don't have to train them. They're in San Francisco and they're leaving because they can't afford to be here. They can't afford to, to pay off their debt. 
Um, so I would encourage everyone to think creatively about how we can how we can increase the efforts by DPH to incentivize our workforce, think about ways we can do it outside of maybe the DPH structure where there are more bureaucratic hurdles to providing incentives. Um, and again, really appreciate all of you focusing your attention on this today. Thank you. Thank you much, Adam Francis. If there are any more speakers in the chamber that wishes to address this committee, now's your time to line up. Good afternoon, supervisors. Thank you all for your time on this issue. It's really, really critical, and I'd like to thank Supervisors Mandelman and um, Ronan for their leadership over the years. <laughs> um, I'm Andrea Aiello, and I'm the director for the Castro Community Benefit District, and I, um, this hearing was really, really um, informative, and I loved also what Supervisor Melgar said. I it was like, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Let's do that. Um, in the Castro, we have definitely seen um, an improvement. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, but really, no, there's, as I would, some people say it's, oh, it's the rain. Um, but really, we have seen an improvement, I think, since about um, October or September or so. And, and um, a lot of that I actually um, attribute to HSOC and their dedication to constantly trying to reach out to folks on the street and, um, and provide them um, access to housing or some kind of services when they do encampment resolutions. And, and the interesting thing is that even the people who are still on the street in the Castro really, you know, it's, it's all about drugs and alcohol, mostly drugs. Some with dual diagnosis, of course. Um, and they all are touched by the city, right? They all have case managers. They all, the city knows them. But for some reason, the services that the city is offering them don't meet their needs. Um, for the variety of reasons they have these needs. And, and um, while we might have a handful of people who are um, on our high you know, list of, of those that need to be, I know that every other neighborhood in the city also has a list of 10 to maybe, if you're down in the Tenderloin or Soma, that list is, goes up to you know, 30 people. So it's hard for me to understand that Speaker we only need expired. 30 beds in, for dual diagnosis, let's say. Um, thank you much, Andrea so, Yellow, for thank you. addressing this committee. Thank you so much. And with that, Mr. Vice Chair, we've completed our queue. Thank you, and uh, we'll see no more public comments. Public comment is now closed. Thank you, colleagues, and thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for uh, sponsoring and leading this uh, hearing. My, I think I heard you loud and clear that you would like to continue to call a chair, but before I do that, I'd like Dr. Kunis to uh, come before the, us, just kind of summarizing what I heard from my colleagues, and would like to see uh, really for those information to come before us uh, maybe before the hearing. I think it's, it's always good to, when all these questions were asked, to actually have answers to them. Maybe not immediately at this point, but to make sure that for the next time when we have a hearing or they have those information. What I'm hearing today, and I'm gonna conclude sort of what I'm hearing from my colleagues though, and, and Supervisor Ronan have brought out a good point, knowing that there's not a really a consistent strategy and approach, not just here in San Francisco, but really uh, anywhere at the, at the moment to tackle a mental health crisis, what we would like to see and we really want to see is that it's okay for San Francisco to be a leader. 
It's the reason why we have you here. So we would like to really see uh, a strategic approach uh, to, to really tell us what is your approach and how do you really, with the resources, existing resources that we have, existing programmings that we have, what is your approach in managing them? I would like to understand, and it sounds to me though, you know, there's conversation really about infrastructure and how do we invest in, in, in our infrastructure. So we'd love to understand the existing funding uh, and then also the funding sources. I appreciate the presentation today, but what we don't dive into is really the dollar amount that we really require to sustain what you presented today. And then where are those funding sources? Where are those money actually coming from? I do see that, you know, there's really a connection with the states, but clearly we're not getting the emission data from the state. And so we don't really have a clear understanding of what the state actually play a role and certainly hope the federal government is going to play a role as well if they haven't already. So that really gonna help us as a city to understand uh, where is the funding, how, how do we do this? And then if we're really gonna continue to advocate for more funding and resources to build the infrastructure that required a, a more nimble and more adaptive model to uh, combat a mental health crisis on our streets and anywhere, uh, I, I think that, that should be um, something to to understand and to discuss. I think last but not least that uh, I know that Supervisor Stephanie has really um, asked those questions already about the waiver for contracts so that we can actually be actively getting beds, uh, you know, which we as a body have already, Board of Supervisors has passed that legislation and uh, approved the waiver. So what I would like to understand is in the upcoming um, you know, information is both in your strategy of how to build up those beds with that waiver now and what is the expectation, the type of beds you will get and number of it, and then also locations. Um, it would be really critical to have those information. Um, I, I think that Supervisor Mandelman is gonna continue this to the call chair unless you have a specific timeline. Um, but I, I think that it will be best to, uh, at least for the very least, to have the existing information as we're going through your budget. <laughs> you know, coming budget, um, which is June, to really at least have the basic of strategic approach, existing funding and funding sources, that managing the beds that you make in presentation today, uh, and also the a projection of uh, the results from the waiver uh, for this body, for this committee to be able to evaluate. Um, and then I hope we have this follow-up conversation. Um, I agree with you, it doesn't seem like both in United States and in, in California actually has a consistent approach. I don't even wanna bring in the whole uh, gun violence and all the other like challenges that we see up and down the states about mental health crisis, not just what we see on our streets along with drug uh, abuse, um, but just so much, uh, so many layers. So we appreciate you tackling this unprecedented public health crisis in San Francisco and, and in California. And I truly hope that with the hard work that my colleagues have put in, that and with their leadership and your hard work and your team's hard work, that we can perhaps really have a fashion, a model that other counties can follow. So with that, uh, Vice Chair Mandelman. 
Thank you, Chair Chan. Um, again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Cummins. I want to thank you for coming back. Um, yes. And I uh, want to thank uh, your department and uh, DOS for all of their work. Um, this is not just a San Francisco problem. This is clearly a California problem and to some extent a national problem. We do have in our file a letter from the Hospital Council of Northern and uh, Central California in which they observe, uh, uh, and this is particularly on those, the need for those post-acute care resources um, that without them, patients can linger in acute care settings for days, weeks, and sometimes months. Um, statewide, these delays are significant. California hospitals provide an estimated million days of unnecessary inpatient care and 7.5 million hours of emergency department care annually due to discharge delays. These delays result in at least $3.25 billion in avoidable hospital costs every year. Um, so this is a significant challenge statewide. It's a significant challenge in San Francisco. Um, I take Supervisor Ronan's point about the importance of the larger framework of Mental Health SF, and I know that that has been a major lift, and I, and I believe, I mean, the world of, of state mental hospitals was relatively simple. The world of folks getting care at the, the appropriate level, locally based, and stepping up and down as their needs may become more or less acute, is complicated. I'm not sure that any county can actually manage that. Um, I think San Francisco, because of your work and because of Mental Health SF, is probably better positioned to try to manage that project than maybe, of, and maybe any other county in California, but certainly most counties in California. But the trouble is, from my perspective, that on the conversation about these most needed beds, we are not in a dramatically different position today than we were five years ago. And that's got to change. We have some opportunities to do that, whether because of Prop 1 um, or other, you know, uh, other resources we may be able to unlock. I think we have to do that work. It is, it is more urgent than ever. Um, I am going to make a motion that we continue this to the call of the chair. I and my office are going to be following up with you, particularly on the sort of, sort of potential relatively minor discrepancies on the, um, on, on the website but more significantly on figuring out how we can understand how many San Franciscans we are getting into these beds over time, not just how many we have theoretically acquired or contracted for, but what's happening in terms of San Franciscans actually in the beds they need at the right levels and being able to track that over time. Um, and I intend to follow up both with uh, both with your department and with DOS about figuring out who is going to um, tackle this uh, ARF problem um, going forward. And of course, uh, we are already engaging around and we'll continue to engage with you and the mayor's office around Prop 1 next steps. So um, there's a lot of work to do. It's going to take us some time, but I, we will be coming back to this, this committee or uh, this committee. So I'd like to make a motion to continue this to the call of the chair. And thank you, colleagues. Thanks, everyone, for your uh, participation and work. Thank you. A roll call, please. And on that motion by Vice Chair Mandelman that this hearing be continued to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Member Melgar. Melgar, aye. Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. And Mr. Clerk, do we have any other business before us today? Madam Chair, that concludes our business. Thank you. The meeting is adjourned.